Hello, welcome to the Christmas special of the Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast. I'm Sharon Friel, Professor of Health Equity at the Australian National University. The Dinner Ladies is a group of female professors at the Australian National University and over the past few years we've gotten together every month over dinner where we talk about life, our research, politics, dogs, cats, fish, whatever. Um, and most importantly, we support each other with the challenging everyday stuff of university life as a senior female academic. Our podcast started when COVID-19 hit Australia in March this year. And given the dinner ladies' expertise across many issues, we thought it might be useful to get together to discuss some of the very real challenges that we've all been facing at the moment in light of COVID-19. Over virtual dinner, our past episodes have been anchored around COVID-19, but cover a much broader sweep of issues that are interconnected and affecting humanity as we know it. Healthcare, inequality, social cohesion, the tragedy of politics, questions of security, ethics and civil liberties, communication and climate change. Yes, all connected uh, to COVID. So tonight's recording is our Christmas special. We didn't want to finish the year in the depths of despair and so the focus is utopia. So welcome everybody, welcome to 2030, to a world where health, social and environmental indicators have never been better. Green economies dominate and prosper and it's a world governed by inclusive and evidence-informed leadership. The social contract is built on a concern for the collective rather than the individual, and systems of surveillance, data and artificial intelligence are all regulated in the public interest. So we've got all of the dinner ladies here, except two, uh, sadly. And you might remember, so we're all at the Australian National University. We have Imogen Mitchell uh, from the Medical School. We've got Lyndall Strasdens from the Research School of Population Health. We've got Helen Sullivan from the Crawford School of Public Policy. We've got Joan Leach from the National Centre for Public Awareness of Science. And we've got Leslie Seabick. Uh, I've got you as a cyber expert, uh, Leslie, because I've just forgotten uh, the institutional affiliation now. And I'm from the, the Menzies Centre in the School of Regulation and Global Governance. So ladies, you are all super, super smart women. Our mission this evening is to discuss the ways that we got to utopia. How did we save the world? So Lyndall, you're going to tell us, what do you think? Positive society, social support, community action. How did we do it? Well, first of all, we ditched GDP. And instead of GDP, we, we actually understood the performance of society against health and well-being. And economics was part of it, but that's all it was. And the rest was about how well people were doing, men, women, children, all people. And that was the focus of each nation's reporting and success. So that was the first thing that we've done, in, that we're doing now that's changed. The second thing is that as well as health coming first in how we, um, how we designed everything we did and how we measure our success against everything we did, we changed what we thought was important. So, um, you know, what, 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 we have, what, what we saw in 2020 
was that things like cleaning, caring, um, supporting, both in paid and unpaid domains, were actually the things that got us through the coronavirus. The healthcare workers, the health professionals, the cleaners, the aged care workers, the childcare workers, all those people, without them, there was nothing happened and suddenly we realised our mistake. And so be, instead of those people being the lowest paid, we moved them up and they became valued, valuable employees and citizens. So we completely changed um, who was paid well and who was not paid well. And the whole way we understood what was work that needed to be remunerated um, was, was upturned so that it became work that was really about the pillars of society and made everything work in the workplace, in home. The second, the, the third bit that we did um, that's changed in 2030 is that um, instead of home places being seen as something people go to um, outside of work, we understood that work has to fit around them. So we changed how we did work so that people's home places could actually drive a lot of how workplaces operated. And we were doing that in 2020, but this time we, we did it properly in 2030 so that we understood that we needed to give people more time to be in their homes and to do the work in their homes and their care and their um, relationships and their volunteering and their community engagement rather than take all their time out of their homes and put them out to service in, in some other way. Um, free childcare. There was free childcare and it's free good childcare. It meant that we, everyone knew that their children were in, in places which valued them, nurtured them, supported them, gave them opportunities, um, that those children were in the best possible circumstances and the whole society understood that that was what was going to drive their success measures, which were not GDP, by the way, but were their wellbeing measures. Um, and we, we, I think we saw, I think we started to see, well, okay, maybe I'll stop there um, and hand over because there's more to come, but I'll stop there. Brilliant, Lyndall. And I, I mean, I think what you're, what you've illustrated how we reached this incredible utopia uh, raised, uh, 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 how that raised such important uh, challenges, but opportunity for really fantastic leadership and ways of governing. Uh, and so, Helen, what, how do you, well, you're going to tell us what that looked like to, to help us get to some of those uh, really impressive issues that, that Lyndall's just highlighted. So what did we do? Oh, well, um, we did some uh, some really important things um, and they were pretty challenging. But uh, given where we were in 2020, we decided that, you know, we had to, uh, if we were going to make a change, we had to make a serious change. So um, alongside, um, you know, abandoning GDP, the other thing we did was completely revolutionise our um, international and national governing institutions, particularly in the context of restoring public authority over things like the market, uh, where we have had become so used to private actors uh, controlling the way in which uh, finance effectively ruled everything that we did. Uh, so we adopted um, 
the uh, the Green New Deal. Um, and the, the version of the Green New Deal that we adopted was one that was developed in the UK by Anne Pettifer and her colleagues. So it was very much about an international focus that really thought about not just how we need to uh, give particular powers back to domestic economies, domestic nations, domestic societies, but also how we have to rethink our international institutions so that they work in the service of what Lindell was talking about, rather than in the service of this kind of mythical thing called the market. Um, now, the other thing that we, we had to do, of course, was that um, we had to think about how do we balance not just the economy and, and society in the way that Lind was talking about, but we also had to, to balance that with security. And so our revolutionising of our international institutions really thought differently about the ways in which those things interconnected uh, so that we, we didn't see these things that were, as, the, as things that were constantly in tension with each other. Um, now, that's a big, big shift. Um, and in order to do that, um, that required us to have some, some very big changes in terms of, of how we led and how we governed. Um, and what we, we decided was important was integrity. That if, if we're going to have systems that are built on trust, which is essential for any kind of functioning society, we had to privilege integrity and we had to get back to um, an understanding of integrity. So transparency and accountability are absolutely vital, but you have to work on the basis that we expect people and politicians and decision makers to, to have integrity. Um, and so the first thing we, we did was we stopped men uh, being able to occupy positions of power for um, five years. Um, and the reason for that um, is that uh, they've made, frankly made such a mess of it and um, we decided that uh, we really needed a clean break with the past. There was also a real concern about, as we, we all knew in 2020, um, about levels of gender inequity and indeed levels of misogyny that had been rising um, in, in societies across the world. So that was the, the first thing that we did. Now, we didn't make that a permanent situation because we're all aware that, um, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we weren't assuming that just because you were a woman, you were necessarily going to be um, a much better leader. But we did have a very clear idea about the kind of leaders we wanted. You know, we wanted leaders like Angela Merkel. And these are leaders who are not flashy, charismatic all about performance. These were leaders who had demonstrated ability to get things done, to be able to negotiate successfully, to be able to bring together groups of people incredibly well. And one of the things that we learned um, and we taught people to do was we taught people that conflict was not necessarily bad, but that we had to become better at engaging in conflict. And by that, I mean debate and discussion. I don't mean war. Um, uh, I mean, us all becoming much better at recognizing that we are going to disagree in diverse societies. Absolutely, disagreement is important, but that does not make us friends and enemies. It simply makes us people with different points of view that are equally valid. Underpinning all of that, we had really strong messages about levels of representation. So where necessary, there were quotas for, for women or other underrepresented groups in governance systems uh, from the local to the global. We also, in some societies, experimented with having second chambers that were made up um, of people on the basis of some kind of lottery system where you got to sit in a second chamber for a period of three years um, and participated in the governance of your 
society. So in the UK, for example, that meant the end of the House of Lords, which, you know, frankly, about time. But um, was something that, you know, was represented in different ways in different places. In Australia, uh, we decided that absolutely we were going to listen to Indigenous voices and a second chamber which was comprised of Indigenous voices was established and that's something that has been <clears throat> represented uh, in other parts of the world too. So very important things like quotas, like changing the rules of the game, um, were absolutely fundamental in us understanding um, how we, we needed to make the changes uh, that we that we had to make. And we also experimented with different kinds of democracy. And Carolyn Hendrick's book on mending democracy, which came out in 2020, gave us some really great examples of how we could go about uh, developing more deliberative, more inclusive, more effective uh, forms of democratic engagement with people. Um, and just finally, I mean, there's lots more to say, but I know um, others have got um, ideas that they want to bring. Finally, there were, there were two other things that we did that were really important. Um, one was that we um, divested any society of a media monopoly. So we broke up News Corp and, um, and with that came the end of shame as a dominant feature in our society. So anybody in public life uh, was always concerned about uh, the extent to which they were subject to um, you know, gotcha moments. We, we really changed the way in which we thought about that. Um, and the other thing that we did uh, was we made it very clear that if we were to address inequality in the way that Lyndall wanted us to, we also had to have some clear way of identifying the relation between those at the top of the organisation and those at the bottom. So we made a very clear decision that it was no longer desirable or even acceptable for people at the top of organizations to earn 10, 20 times what people at the bottom did. Uh, and we made that, that uh, gap much, much narrower. So now you would expect to see people earning no more than 10 to 12 times um, at the top than they do at the bottom. Awesome. So John, Helen has just sort of described this complete uh, turning on the head that we did uh, with rules of the game and of course uh, she made it sound so easy uh, to transform those institutions of power, privilege and so forth. What sort of role did data, evidence and of course the communication play in helping to achieve that sort of transformation that positioned uh, the principles of equity, of value, of respect uh, that Lyndall and Helen um, have, have spoken about. How did we do it from a kind of a, da a data and a communication perspective? So what's really interesting looking back from 2030 is that, gosh, those dark days of 2020 where the dominant mode of communication, you might remember back to the pandemic, was sort of command and control. A lot of telling people what they can do and what they cannot do. Um, and we had to shift that. And we moved away from that command and control kind of communication and kind of came up with a, a new concept that we embrace now about. And it's a concept of community autonomy. So it's not just respect for the individual, but it's respect for communities. And, and now you can really see how that plays out. But, but you know, it took us a, a little while to get there. And we had to see some of the failures um, of command and control to, to get where we are now, where we can focus on um, community kinds of understandings. Um, and one of the things about that that Helen's kind of already brought out is 
we had to shift from, we had a huge shift to make from the nation being the site at which data, evidence, and interventions were happening. So again, think back to those dark days of 2020 where we were getting ready to roll out a vaccine and nations were competing and there was you know, a lot of uncertainty around the world, who was going to, who was going to win, who was, who was going to get the vaccine late, a lot of um, social unrest. Um, but luckily we learned from that. We, we don't want to go back there. And so the nation is kind of diminished as a site for certain kinds of things, especially when it goes to you know, science, technology, health and medicine, because the nation isn't, isn't sort of um, where uh, the innovation happens. These are usually global, either global or community. Uh, happenings. They're not, the nation is kind of a, a useless concept we found by 2030 in relation to science and, um, and technology because most of our biggest problems and the one we're still grappling with now that we've made, you know, a lot of inroads is climate. And the way we made inroads there is by valuing community action um, and getting away from the nation and making it an international or global prob problem that we can all own. So that was just a huge shift in our communication. So now we don't see so many uh, kinds of um, health communication where the individual is a site of responsibility. Instead, it's about communities because that's where we found that was the best site um, for, for all kinds of intervention. And that's actually how the vaccine um, did finally get successfully rolled out after some fits and starts because communities got involved for themselves and advocated. So that was a huge, huge shift. And, and this diminishment of the nation uh, was, was, was really important. The other thing that um, kind of shifted as far as our communication goes, um, and this is also important about the way that we started using evidence was, gosh, if you think all the way back, maybe even to the 1980s when we had the war on drugs, and then we had the war on waste. And then by 2020, we, we were declaring war on COVID. Um, and those warlike metaphors were actually incredibly damaging to how we saw ourselves working together. And so we had to get kind of purged those kinds of narratives for much more pro-social narratives that acknowledge values. And this was really, really a stretch for you know, scientists especially um, because they wanted to get rid of kind of all values from the way they talked. That, that, was, the, that was the goal um, you know, pre-2020. But by the time we get to 2030, what we've mastered is kind of a set of pro-social narratives that even in our esoteric technologies like quantum, Right? What we're seeing is scientists aren't talking about the good that quantum technologies do for the nation anymore. They're talking about the pro-social uses that quantum technologies can do to um, kind of verify our elections, to model all kinds of engineering projects, to give us computing power that we didn't have before, but they don't see it as in service to the state. They see it in service to the community or to big, larger international goals. So this was huge. This was just a huge shift. And it's, it's really brought us to, I mean, the, the much happier place we are now, Sharon. Awesome. Well, such provocations for our listeners. Uh, we, uh, we've, we've shifted away from the, the nation state and uh, Joan has explained how you know, for us to have reached utopia, really that very important uh, focus on community, more local, but also, of course, uh, the interface with the, the global. So Leslie, I, that also has incredible implications, doesn't it, from a, a surveillance uh, perspective, because front and centre of all of that surely was the, 
the nation state, I mean, per, perhaps. So how, how, did we, how did we think about surveillance to get to a world now where actually the, the, the nation state is somewhat <laughs> diminished? Uh, yeah, it's interesting because one of the things about cyber, it's all about the dark side <clears throat> of digitalization technology. And if you remember, I mean, a lot of what Silicon Valley was about, you have to go back to the 1970s and you had that real utopian drive. There are a lot of good intentions coming out of Silicon Valley. And now where we are at the moment, frankly, I'm out of a job. And that's great because, you know, if I have to deal with the dark side, there is no dark side in a utopia. Um, how did we get here? So part of the issues that was confronted in the 2000s, it wasn't just the nation state. A lot of the nation states themselves were pushing back or in competition, using in competition, so it was all collaboration, et cetera, with the big platforms. And technology is one of those, you know, um, ICT software data is one of those things where it doesn't take much. It's a general purpose technology. It doesn't take much for you to put some code out into the wild, start collecting data, watch what people do, and then act on it. And we saw so many startups would just start from the small and they'd rise because they'd been using this data, which they were harvesting from people. And the best metaphor I could think of here is, I don't know, you know, how many people here have seen The Matrix? I suspect everyone has. Where people would be harvested, their energy would be harvested for batteries to fuel the machines. Well, not just in the sense, we're being harvested all the time for our data. And so you know, what we found that over time was that we eventually said stop. And we can trace some of this back to, there's a couple of things. Firstly, the 2020 presidential election itself was a, was a game changer, not just in terms of the politics, you know, the change of president, but also because we started seeing a lot of states in the US start, you know, putting up laws that were started to stop the collection of this data and starting to reinforce privacy. So there was a, used to be a saying that privacy was dead. And we actually had former prime ministers who would get out and say this, oh, forget it, privacy's dead. Privacy was recognised and reaffirmed as a, as a really strong human right. It is at the heart of what we are at. And anyone who says privacy is dead, well, you look at, um, you know, uh, the case of, um, you know, the head of Facebook, um, I've forgotten his name at the moment, uh, but he was asked, you know, well, if privacy is dead and you're just harvesting the stuff, give us your um, home address. Oh, well, no, that's different. And people said, well, how are you different? So that push towards equality, there is, a, you know, we overcame that push for special interest groups to sort of section themselves out of laws and regulations. Uh, but also that, that competition between nations and uh, platforms really reached a point whereby we could look at a platform and say, you're doing all the work of, of governments because a lot of it had been outsourced. And we were confronted now between not merely, um, you know, uh, nation states like Australia or, you know, US, etc., being engaged in the same techno-authoritarianism, but we started seeing the rise of Amazonistan, you know, the, so the state of the Amazon. So all these were pushing their own wall gardens. And that really came to, a, came to a crunch and we end up saying, actually, what's really important here, the one thing we can agree on is the primacy of the individual. And so we started to see the individual, that true user-centered design. And what I used to say about you know, cyber, 90% of cyber, all the problems we used to see, it's about people. By people putting people at the absolute center, 
we started redefining how technology interacted with our lives. We actually started to own our own data. And in a digital democracy or a digital any system, and democracies really fared well in this system, to be able to own your own data was to be enfranchised. Without that, you were not enfranchised. So we started to see that, ri you know, that rise. Uh, we started to see elements that were started to strengthen democracy. Right? So rather than technology undermining democracy, we started to see ways that we could actually strengthen democracy. So forum were being brought together. And this was the, the, it was being led by those smaller democracies which actually understood authoritarianism and had experienced it within people's lifetimes, like Taiwan and Estonia. And so you start seeing community forums, you know, sort of start to say, actually, how do we solve things like climate change? You know, the response to the pandemic, uh, the response of, you know, these big techno-authoritarian states, which were quite frightening. Um, and they did it by things such as, oh, we're not going to muscle up. They do it by humour, by undermining, by saying, actually, this is, you know, seriously, we can't take this, you know, this disinformation seriously. They used to laugh at it and, you know, it proved to be really, really effective. So we started to see that. We then started to see, too, uh, you know, efforts over time to build the technology infrastructure that actually made us secure communications, processing, uh, you know, uh, 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 infrastructure rather than the internet that used to exist, which was fundamentally broken because it was never designed with these things in mind. And now what we're seeing, of course, everyone has their own guardian AI. Yes, we're still in the early stages. This is something, of course, which was brought about so you would actually have someone there looking after your interests online. And it was something that was fundamental to that transition of the old internet to where we are today, saying, actually, someone's accessing your material. Someone's checking in on you. Do you know this person you know, is actually trying to actually seek your health information? Oh, it's an insurer. And you're actually able, given the tools, to actually say, that's bad behavior. Stop it now. And you could actually start participating. It was gave you a way to check on what... Um, to pursue uh, avenues of transparency and accountability. You can go and say, so what did you do with that money that was given for this project? Because there was something there doing this processing on your behalf and it's secure, it's reliable. And then yes, it will continue to grow with you during your lifetime. And by doing that too, what we've found is actually we've been able to use technology to, to uh, level those inequities, which are always breed disharmony and conflict, et cetera. So the future's looking good. And yeah. I'm out of a job, which is great. <laughs> well, but you've just laid out, um, if anybody's listening in, they'll be getting in touch, I'm pretty sure. Because I, so I thought you said we all have a guardian angel. Uh, but yeah, it, so it's like that. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. So yeah, I keep referring to uh, the, you know, there, many years ago, there was those you know, young, young adult fiction books around, uh, I think they were TV series made uh, out of it, the um, Northern Lights and the Golden Compass and so on. They made a film of Golden Compass. Um, Philip Pullman was the author. And everyone had their own demon, which you know, was this animal that lived with them. It was part of their soul. And, you know, what we, what we realized with the old internet was that we're giving parts of our soul away or other people are claiming to own them and own our identity and define that for us. And now if that's not the definition of, you know, of slavery, I don't know what is. So, you know, it is a guardian AI. It's a guardian angel. It's, a, it's your daemon. Leslie, will, will the angel remember our passwords? You won't need passwords. Passwords are insecure. We're insecure. Utopia. We know we've made it when we don't need a password. Awesome. 
Um, so imagine, so we've kind of gone from sort of society and that reforming of society, you know, Linda was talking about work and time and family and the dynamics between all of that and, and how that matters for our health. And Helen was, you know, connecting that into these big uh, changes that took place uh, since 2020 uh, in our institutions of governance. And then with Joan uh, really talking about well, you know, just how we spoke about society, how we reframed the language, the metaphors, the, the discourse of, of society to help us uh, reach the sorts of utopia uh, that Lyndall and Helen had spoken about. And then, Leslie, you've just sort of taken us to the level of artificial intelligence that is now actually working on principles of your sort of good ethics, in a sense. Um, and Imogen sort of nestled in all of that, of course, in the journey from COVID-19 back in 2020 to now, where we have much better health than we've ever had before. Of course, the health system, the healthcare system is completely embedded uh, within everything that we've been speaking about so far. So what happened? Did, was COVID a, a trigger for just like changing our healthcare system? Or why, why is it so good now? Yeah, it's interesting because um, in some respects, uh, the pandemic back in 2020 was in fact a moment for us to reflect on the way we were delivering healthcare. Uh, and I think it very much prompted us to reform what we were doing. Um, I mean, I think if you think back with a sort of radical thought of universal healthcare in Australia, I think over the next few decades, whilst um, there were an increasing number who had access to healthcare, there seemed to be an increasing um, separation of those that had and those that didn't have. And bringing the aspects of what the others have mentioned, I think we realised that there just wasn't the um, equity of access to healthcare, whether you lived rurally, uh, whether you, had, uh, you know, didn't have the financial capability to access high-end healthcare, I think that triggered us to say, well, no, actually, we need to really encompass all of Australians into ensuring we have cutting edge healthcare. And that's meant that we've really developed very strong networks, whether that be from academic health centres out to the, you know, small regional rural areas. But I think it's also meant that we've had to design a new healthcare professional who's prepared to go out uh, further from the central high end uh, sort of ivory towers of hospitals and are prepared to work in areas where others, such as medical professionals, have been uh, unhappy to work and you know, mostly want to be centred in the big towns. So I think you know, it really did trigger us to say, no, we really need to rethink our model of care such that everyone has a better access uh, and equity to um, high-end healthcare. I think the other thing that it also did was that um, we really needed to... Um, co-create, uh, um, I guess, um, healthcare policy and processes with both clinicians, bureaucrats, but also patients and consumers. And that we really were, I guess, trying to, uh, I guess, center everything around the patient, such that in the end, you land up with your own personalized healthcare map, a bit like a Google map that we used to have and where how we used to drive around. But we now can navigate 
our own healthcare system with signposts such that if you make a decision yourself or with your um, healthcare professional, you know what you're going to butt against uh, and the things that you're likely to experience. And you can be more in control of the decisions that you need uh, along that journey uh, of, it, of healthcare experience. I think the other thing that got recognized during the pandemic was this real breakdown in um, healthcare delivery systems so that we've actually got um, you know, primary healthcare, we've recognized that residential aged care is in fact part of the healthcare system. I think we, can, we no longer could sort of pass it off as a separate part of the healthcare system and that we join up um, the acute care facilities with the community and with our aged care facilities so that there is much better continuity of care uh, and not these boundaries, whether they be jurisdictional, whether they be financial, uh, and whether the, in fact, where you actually sit geographically. So that has become, I think, increasingly important. I think the other aspect is that uh, we now have universal digital health records, we now can gather data, it can be personalised data, and that again can inform the best healthcare uh, that you need to receive uh, wherever you are, uh, whatever stage of life. And these data inform uh, treatments, uh, but it also is, I guess, uh, backed up by um, up-to-date evidence which became very apparent during the pandemic that we really needed to deliver healthcare with the best evidence possible. So it should we always know that we're gonna receive uh, cutting edge healthcare to improve our patient experience and outcome. And I think at that point, I might uh, hand over to you, Sharon. Brilliant. Um, I mean, it's so, uh, so encouraging, isn't it? To have heard that sort of trajectory of healthcare to you know, people-centered healthcare. We, we heard um, sort of user-centered design um, when Leslie was talking about uh, tech stuff. Sorry, Leslie, that's my knowledge of, of tech stuff. Um, but you know, for a long time, we used to speak about people-centered uh, healthcare, and it was always such a challenge. And yeah, just so. So lovely to hear that we have that now and how fantastic that we've got aged care actually connected into uh, the healthcare system. Fantastic. I mean, that was such a lovely learning from the disaster that happened uh, in the 2020 COVID uh, situation. And so I suppose, Imogen, and we'll, we'll just sort of open up for uh, a bit of general discussion at the, the moment because it, I, mean, I think what each of you have pointed towards is in some respects, well, as, as you were all speaking, I, I was just kind of trying to see the thread uh, within it. And I think there's two threads. I've written uh, interests, ideas and institutions uh, because each person has really spoken about how different interests uh, were elevated or uh, whatever the opposite is, um, and, and how it's the, the metaphors, the discourse, the ideas were used to help make that happen, or how in changing those interests, that actually shifted uh, the framing of society. And then, of course, fundamentally within all of that was is some of this institutional reform uh, that took place. And it just strikes me that sort of power running the whole way through all of that. You know, there was uh, Helen telling us how we just completely flipped on its head our 
misogynistic society uh, and you know there with a an incredible recalibration of power that took place but the other thing that sort of struck me and maybe if, if we can for each of you to reflect is if you think so uh, Amartya Sen always spoke about you know in terms of uh, empowerment and the freedom to lead a life that we have reason to value and here we are in 2030 living in utopia with a, you know, a life that we have all uh, reason to value and fundamental uh, within that in the capabilities to allow us those sorts of freedoms uh, are issues of resources that might be material resource, it might be the time resource that Lyndall, you were speaking about. It also requires us to have a sense of control over our lives and each of you have spoken about issues of control over our sense of control over our life. And fundamental to all of that is being involved in the decision-making processes that affect our lives. And I, you know, that, that uh, all of these sorts of issues have been spoken about or written about and been debated for decades before COVID hit us back in 2020. What was the thing that you think that just helped us break the, the business as usual? And you know, the, the pathways that each of you laid out it's it, you know, obviously so positive. We're in uh, we're now in utopia. Was there something or a number of things in the various areas that you've spoken about? What was the catalyzing factor? Is that Lyndall? You're kicking off. Okay. Well, actually, I think one of the catalysts was that we suddenly realised how profoundly we had misunderstood evolutionary theory. We'd understood it as survival of the fittest and a competitive winner takes all. And what this decade showed was how wrong we were in understanding what Darwin was observing and what actually happens in society and that, in fact, evolutionary success is based on the cooperation, the connection, the teamwork, the collaboration, and as that's what creates species survival. And of all decades, this was a decade that confronted us with survival. So we had to re really understand actually what was going to help us survive the decade, the pandemic, and then the decade that came after it, and really understand that it was all about the co cooperative capacities of people. And that linked back to communities, that linked back to trust, that's linked back to the, the connections, that linked back to, to the care, um, all of which were threads, um, the empowerment um, rather than um, a kind of stripping away of actually the real survival mechanisms that works in society. And it was that paradigm shift that helped support some of the political shifts, um, the constitutional shifts, the communication breakthroughs, um, the scientific shifts, um, the, the recalibration of where control needs to sit in a society. Awesome evolutionary theory i didn't know we would weave that in but that's fantastic joan so there was a whole shift in our understanding of evolutionary theory we've just changed the data and the evidence well this is part of the story right because um i mean we hit by the end of the 2020s <laughs> uh we certainly hit um you know 
a period of radical not knowing. Um, so lots of things have happened, ha started happening that we couldn't explain. So for example, all of our polling was wrong. You know, think back to the 2016 and 2020 elections. Our polling was wrong. Now, how can that be? And we spent a lot of time worry, worrying about that. And then we would, we, we couldn't anticipate any longer how others were going to react to us and rem remember the mass shrieking <laughs> that was going on, for example, in the United States where, where people, you know, couldn't get along uh, because they couldn't kind of anticipate how others were going to react. And it was that real social disruption. So it was this, this radical kind of not knowing that shook us a bit. And I think that more than anything kind of motivated us and, and you know, to, to the, the kinds of um, understandings that Lyndall has um, just ta talked about. It made us question, it made us go back and rethink. Um, and the other thing I, I think I would point to is that, you know, 2020 was a pretty po-faced year, okay? People, people were a bit, I mean, quite rightly somber, but it wasn't a very, um, I mean, you know, you really say from about 2005, people just got increasingly more serious. And, and so Leslie was talking about, um, you know, how the use of humor disrupted things. Well, things started getting a little bit more fun about 2022. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, you know, humor became part of our discourse as it hadn't been uh, for, for some time, really. And so people, we started talking, you know, about humor over rumor. And, 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 as, and as Leslie says, looking at miscommunication and kind of rolling our eyes and saying, oh, really? Um, and so it was a way of responding to that radical not knowing. You know, you can either look into the abyss and you can say, oh, no, and the abyss looks back. Or you can look into the abyss and say, oh, that's a bit amusing. And so it was that shift. And, and, and it really did matter. It really did matter. And so now that's why 2030 is such a fun place to be. Awesome, and, and did that, I've, I've not heard that humour over rumour, I love that. Um, but just going back to to your point of the, the radical not knowing and how that disrupted, uh, Helen, did that did that sort of create a, a policy window? Like, was that, was that it? Um, yeah, absolutely it did. And I, and I think um, one of the things that, that's, that's really important uh, about what happened and, and and we've not talked about it yet but um joan's given us a, a great segue into this is that we we recognize that um in order to to be um valuable to be valued to to have the capacities you know all the things that you, you've talked about um we do have to take the work of citizenship seriously and we do have to uh, identify um, the place, the space, uh, the processes where that happens. And of course, where does that happen? It happens principally, not exclusively, but in education. And we realized that we needed to do much more work um, in terms of really making education the, the most highly prized gift that we gave the next generation. Um, and that we recognize that um, it is not enough to just, you know, make, you know, give people individual choices. Um, it is important that as a society, we understand the power of education, not just to realize the, the potential of everyone, um, but also uh, to engage us in this common enterprise 
which is the common enterprise of thriving um, in, in the way that we are now. And so we, the policy window, the key policy window was, was education and it began with free childcare and then it moved through primary, secondary and tertiary. And we recognize that knowledge and what that can do for us um, is hugely empowering and that that should be uh, within the grasp of, of everyone. Um, and, and so we became much more serious about um, our commitments to education. And we, you know, we threw out all of the, the tests and the PISA ratings and all of that stuff that had just got us into, you know, really unhelpful competition. And we focused on what does it mean uh, to, to be able to um, empower and educate and inform and, and, to, and to generate people who are able to recognize the difference between the cruel humor that we had become so used to in the late 20s, you know, the, the humor that was about punching down rather than punching up. Um, and we recognize the difference between that and the, and the humor that is the kind of thing that, that brings us together and that um, doesn't rely on us vilifying or shaming uh, people who are vulnerable. So it was both about how we you know, we thought about education, but it was also about how we recaptured some of the some of the things that are really good about our social relations, but that we'd actually allowed to become quite tarnished. Great, and I, I think just thinking in the education space, uh, and you know, Lyndall reminding us that we had that we re uh, understood evolutionary. Uh, theory and, and you know, with that being in an education system that we've developed since the, the 2020s yeah. you know an education system. And we also system. learned that we didn't use the word space in a kind of random generalised <laughs> <laughs> No 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 that, that, that was that was part of the curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I'm coming, I'm coming right back from that one now. But well, maybe we will sort of wrap up in a little while, but we've still got time to chat. But just with you planting the thought of education, um, maybe we'll think about what happened in the tertiary education space. But uh, Leslie, over to you. What do you think? What what happened? What was the catalyst? Okay, so so if I go, if I think back, a lot of I can see a lot. So we've just had a little technical uh, problem. Um, Leslie has uh, just frozen. Uh, the, one of the problems with technology in 2030 is it's, it's still a bit random. It really is. Uh, but, you know, it'll get sorted. Uh, so I'm just going to swing over. I've no idea if Leslie's going to be speaking over me in the recording, um, but we'll do something in the editing, perhaps. Imogen... You know the, the sort of the so we're talking about these catalyzing uh, moments or or, or catalysts that happened uh, after sort of twenty twenty and when you spoke so you know you described the the lovely situation that we have in healthcare now was there a particular well, obviously COVID nineteen was a bit of a shock to the system and that started uh, things off but. What did you see happening then? Because you've always spoken about this really important local uh, focus and understanding the locality. Like we are here uh, in Canberra at the ANU, and you know, working closely uh, and wanting to work more closely with ACT Health, our 
regional health authority. But was it things like that that helped or what do you think? I think it was a combination of events. I mean, I think certainly uh, nationally and globally, uh, what was very visible and palpable was um, the attenuation of the differences in access to healthcare. Uh, I think that was very obvious quite early on. I think, you know, when we watched, um, you know, the pictures from Italy uh, and New York, uh, it really did bring home just the inequity of access. So I think, you know, there were, there were visual prompts. I mean, again, you know, if you go back to the pandemic in 2020, you, know, you remember the yellow bin bags outside of aged care facilities with all the PPE stacked up because clearly there hadn't been adequate planning for the pandemic. And uh, it really, again, brought into light just the vulnerability of uh, older um, population. But again, there were other um, areas where there was vulnerabilities and, and certainly, uh, you know, we were under great stress as to whether, you know, some places like the disability sector was going to be um, uh, captured up into the pandemic. So I think that really did highlight the fact that we need to do something about equity of access. I think the other thing that it did do in terms of, you know, we talked about not knowing. I mean, I think when we first walked into the pandemic, that there was a true sense of fear. And, uh, and, but evidence was starting to pour out from those areas that had already experienced the pandemic. And what that meant is that we had to have, or healthcare system had to have very close relationships with academic centers to ensure that the evidence that was pouring out was actually going to inform practice. So that connection, I think, just got strengthened and, and the importance of those connections uh, got realized into 2030. So I think, to me, it was a highlight of things that were of visible concern that actually prompted the healthcare system that it had to change. And it had to change quickly. I mean, if you recall back, there was really very little telehealth before uh, the pandemic in 2020. And now it's just incorporated into the model of care so that, you know, I think as Lyndall has spoken, you know, we bring the service to the home so that that truly is happening when you talk about uh, telemedicine. So I think... For us, there were just lots of prompts that actually we were just trying to rectify things that were not correct. And uh, that really gave us an opportunity to reform healthcare. Great. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just so positive, the, the developments that happened. Um, so, Leslie, you're back with us, I think. I was just explaining to our listeners that in 2030, we have terrible IT. Um, I think it's got something to do with the fact that we're interacting with more of the planets now. Um, I'm not sure. But. I'm glad you went there because one of the things I didn't, I neglected to say is that having sort of, you know, stations on Mars and, and the moon and, um, and now, you know, expanding beyond the solar system does stretch you know, um, the um, new internet, let's call it that, uh, a, a tad. So as I was saying, um, some of these trends you, were seen, you, could tr you could trace back to the 1880s and they've been frozen in time because of responses to warfare and so on. But what we're seeing is that, 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 that um, you know, what, what used to be called disruption. So a lot of our institutions have changed. Uh, we have got a lot better in particular things which are centred around the individual, healthcare being one, et cetera. Education is another, and again, we've seen that transformation of the education system. Uh, it's very much around that lifelong learning model, and you know, with that, you know, the um, 
you know, your, your daemon, you're now actually brought up and say, actually, this would be useful to learn now. This is the sort of things you need to understand, etc. And it's really helping that critical thinking as well. And by easing that um, access to that, all the things we need to live in a modern society, governments, you know, our democratic governments have actually gained a lot more legitimacy than they actually had in the past. So that was, that's been a major change. And I think that's, that's the thing that's really, you know, you can look back and see those trends, but that freeing up of those institutional and mindset binds that kept us held within a, we're, just, we're too scared to, to go. And one of the things that, that really triggered this too was let's not forget that all the people, you know, 73 you know, 73 million people in the United States felt sufficiently disenfranchised to vote for something, you know, a you know, anti-establishment candidate. And not just vote him in the first time, but re-vote for him again. And that was a waking up. So people who were in the elites, which frankly do include people like ourselves, really you had to find ways to really connect with those, you know, all those other the people who had missed out. Well, ladies, we could um, we could just speak all night. It's uh, I, I think I, I should say it's so good that there are ladies like you, or there are you uh, who are on this planet and who have helped us. Uh, since 2020 to get to Utopia because some of the, the insights that each of you uh, have brought to our discussion tonight, uh, I frankly, we, we must implement them. You know, I'm coming back into the real world now and you know back into the, the depths of despair at the end of 2020. Uh, I do hope the people who have been listening uh, to the podcast really rally around and say, yep, these are the things that we need to do to move forward in order to uh, to save the world uh, as we uh, would like it to be saved. So I think I probably should uh, wrap up. We've been chatting for quite a while. I know people love a long Christmas special, don't they? But you know, you, you might have other things to do um, rather than just sit and listen to us. Uh, so time to finish up our, our Christmas dinner. Uh, you've been listening to the Australian National University uh, Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast. Until the next time, and we hope we'll be back with you early in 2021, uh, stay safe. <laughs>